Hello and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel and I am your host. To all my original listeners, welcome back. To all my new listeners, welcome. If you enjoy the podcast and wish to support this show, you can help support it by clicking on the support link in the description of any episode. I have also created a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the episodes for this podcast. There is also a link on the website to the Facebook page for All Things Plantagenet. Okay, so now on to the show. Section 2 of Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 3, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anne Boulay. Isabella of Valois, Part 2. After enduring many mortifications at the tower, King Richard offered to resign the crown to Henry of Bolingbroke, who immediately replied, It is necessary that the three estates of the realm should hear this proposition, and in three days the parliaments will be collected, and can debate on the subject. So far his rejoinder was made, with moderation and propriety, but he added, the people want to crown me, for the common report in the country is that I have a better right to the crown than you. This was told our grandfather, King Edward, of happy memory, when he educated you and had you acknowledged heir to the crown. But his love was so strong for his son, the Prince of Wales, nothing could make him alter his purpose. If you had followed the example of the prince, you might still have been king, but you have always acted so contrary, as to occasion the rumor to be generally believed throughout England, that you were not the son of the Prince of Wales, but of a priest or canon. I have heard several knights who were in the household of my uncle, the Prince of Wales, declare that he was jealous of the conduct of the princess. She was cousin German to King Edward, who began to dislike her for not having children by his son, for he knew that she had sons by her former marriage with Sir Thomas Holland, since he had himself stood godfather to two. The Princess of Wales knew well how to keep my uncle in her chains, having through subtlety enticed him to marry her, but fearful of being divorced by the king, his father, for want of heirs, and that the prince would marry again. It is said she had you and another son, who died in his infancy, by some other person. And from your modes of thinking and acting, being so different to the gallantry and prowess of the prince, it is thought you were the son of a priest or a canon, for, at the time of your birth, there were many young and handsome ones in the household of my uncle at Bordeaux. Such is the report of this country, which your conduct has confirmed, for you have ever shown a great affection to the French, and a desire to live at peace with them, to the loss of the honor of England. Because my uncle of Gloucester and the good Earl of Arundel gave you good advice, and wished you to follow in the footsteps of your ancestors, you have treacherously put them to death. As for me, I will give you my protection, and will guard and preserve your life through compassion, as long as I shall be able. For two hours did Henry thus converse, continuing to reproach the king, with all the wrong he had ever been guilty of, in the whole course of his life. He then took leave, re-entered his barge, and returned to his house, 
and on the morrow renewed his orders for the assembling of Parliament. As an interlude to the narrative of Froissart, which details the deep dejection of Richard, the accounts given by his faithful attendant, and the manuscript of the embassades, show Richard, at intervals, with the lion-like despair of the Plantagenets, awakened in his breast. Sometimes the thoughts of his young wife, a prisoner like himself, and perhaps in equal danger, gave rise to tempests of rage, before whose sway the insolence of the usurper seems to have quailed, when in his presence. The time of the interview here described must have been one day of the three which intervened between the conference concerning the abdication just detailed and the meeting of Parliament. The Dukes of York and Amaral, and Henry, now called Duke of Lancaster, went to the tower, and sent the young Earl of Arundel to bid the king come to them out of his privy chamber. When this message was delivered to Richard, he replied, Tell Henry of Lancaster from me, I shall do no such thing. If he wants to see me, let him come to me. On entering the king's apartment, none showed any respect to him but Henry, who took off his cap, and saluting him respectfully, said, Here is our cousin the Duke of Almeryl, and our uncle the Duke of York, who wish to speak to you. Richard said, Cousin, they are not fit to speak to me. But have the goodness to hear them, said Henry. Upon which Richard uttered an oath, and said, turning to York, Thou villain, what wouldst thou say to me? And thou traitor of Rutland, thou art neither good nor worthy to speak to me, nor to bear the name of duke, earl, or knight. Thou, and the villain thy father, foully have ye betrayed me. In a cursed hour were ye born. By your false counsels was my uncle Gloucester put to death. Amaral replied to the king, that he lied, and threw down his bonnet at his feet, upon which the king said, I am king and thy lord, and will continue king, and be greater lord than I ever was, in spite of all my enemies. Upon this, Henry imposed silence on Almeryl. Richard, then turning with a fierce countenance to Henry, asked, Why was he in confinement, and under a guard of armed men? Am I your servant, or am I your king? What do you mean to do with me? Henry replied, you are my king and my lord, but the council of the realm have determined that you are to be kept in confinement till the decision of Parliament. The king then swore a deep oath and said, Let me have my wife. Excuse me, replied Henry. It is forbidden by the council that you should see Queen Isabel. Then the king, in wrath, walked about the room, breaking into passionate exclamations and appeals to heaven, called them false traitors, offered to fight any four of them, threw down his bonnet as a gage, spoke of his father's and his grandfather's fame, and his reign of twenty-one years. Henry of Lancaster then fell on his knees, and besought him to be quiet till the meeting of Parliament. Before the meeting of Parliament, this burst of spirit had subsided in deep despondency. Historians are not agreed whether the abdication of Richard took place in the hall of the tower, or in Westminster Hall. Stowe declares it was in Westminster Hall, and that by a singular coincidence, this ceremony was the first solemnized in that building, since its new erection by Richard. The Parliament, in fact, waited, sitting in Westminster Hall, 
the termination of the following scene. Henry rode to the tower with a select number of prelates, dukes, earls, and knights, and dismounted in the courtyard. While King Richard, royally dressed, with the scepter in his hand and the crown on his head, entered the hall in the tower, but without supporters on either side, which was his usual state. He then addressed the company as follows. I have reigned King of England, Duke of Aquitaine, and Lord of Ireland, about twenty-two years, which royalty, lordship, scepter, and crown, I now freely and willingly resign to my cousin, Henry of Lancaster, and entreat of him, in the presence of you all, to accept this scepter. He then tendered the scepter to Henry of Lancaster, who took it, and gave it to the Archbishop of Canterbury. King Richard then raised up his crown with both his hands, from his head, and, placing it before him, said, Henry, fair cousin, I present and give to you this crown, with which I was crowned King of England, and with it all the rights dependent on it. Henry of Lancaster received the royal diadem, and delivered it over to the archbishop. Thus was the resignation accepted, Henry of Lancaster calling in a public notary that an authentic act might be drawn up of this proceeding, which was witnessed by all present. Soon after the king was led back to the apartments in the tower, from whence he had been conducted. The two jewels, the crown and scepter, were safely packed up and given to proper guards, who placed them in the treasury of Westminster Abbey until they should be needed. The news of the restraint in which the young queen of England was held had been carried by some merchants of Burgess to the coast of France, together with the account of the deposition of her husband. But when the Lady de Courcy arrived, who had been attached to the household of Isabella, the whole truth was known. Directly she alighted at the hotel of her lord at Paris, the king of France sent there to hear news of his daughter. The king of France was so much shocked at the ill tidings she told of Isabella and her husband, that though his health had been good for some time, his agitation, on hearing of his daughter's reverse of fortune, brought back his fits of frenzy. The Duke of Burgundy said, The marriage of King Richard with Isabella was unadvised, and so I declared when it was proposed. Since the English have imprisoned King Richard, they will assuredly put him to death for they always hated him because he preferred peace to war. They will as certainly crown Henry of Lancaster. This prediction of the queen's uncle proved true. During the last days of September, Henry of Lancaster was recognized by the majority of the assembled parliament as king, and was magnificently crowned in October, without the slightest recognition of the prior claims of the orphan heirs of the Earl of March. While this revolution was effected, the young queen was removed to Sunning Hill. There she was kept a state prisoner, and sedulously misinformed regarding the events that had befallen her husband. The last hopes of King Richard had ended in despair, when his cousin Almeryl had yielded the loyal city of Bristol, and his brother-in-law, Huntingdon, gave up Calais and swore fealty to Henry the Fourth. This fealty, however, only lasted six weeks. A plot was set on foot, headed by Almeryl, Huntington, and Salisbury, for killing Henry the Fourth at a tournament they were about to give at Windsor. 
henry whose health soon broke under the anxieties which beset the crown of thorns he had assumed was sick at windsor castle there was a spiked instrument concealed in his bed for the purpose of destroying him when he lay down to rest its introduction says the monk of evesham was attributed to one of the young queen's servants richard's doom was now sealed he was hurried from the tower to pontefract castle meantime the confederate lords flew to arms and dressing up king richard's chaplain madeleine in royal robes proclaimed that the deposed king had escaped from his jailers the young queen isabella took an extraordinary part in this movement for the restoration of her husband when the earls of kent and salisbury came with their forces to sunning hill where she was abiding they told her they had driven the usurper bolingbroke from windsor to the stronghold of the tower and that her husband had escaped and was then in full march to meet her at the head of a hundred thousand men overjoyed at this news the young queen put herself at their disposal she likewise took great pleasure in ordering the badges of henry the fourth to be torn from her household and replaced by those of her royal husband in which harmless spite says hayward the queen isabel took the utmost satisfaction a proclamation was likewise issued in her name declaring that she did not recognize henry of lancaster as king the queen then set out with her brother-in-law the earl of kent and his allies on their march to wallingford and abington full of joyful hope the enthusiastic girl expected every hour to meet her king triumphant at the head of a loyal army she was with the barons when they entered the fatal town of sarancester but amidst the mysterious darkness which shrouds the termination of this insurrection we lose sight of the actual manner in which the young queen was recaptured by henry the fourth let fortune have declared for whatever party it might disappointment alone was in store for the heart of isabella since the richard whom she hoped to meet was but a counterfeit in royal robes to deceive the common people the chiefs of the insurrection were betrayed by the mayor of sarancester and their summary execution followed in a few hours isabella was too young to be punished for her share in this rebellion excepting by close restraint she was sent after a quiet was restored strictly guarded to the palace of havering at bower and this appears to have been her place of residence during the tragic events that succeeded the insurrection in which she took a part so decided considering her tender age these transactions took place at the end of january and at the beginning of february fourteen hundred when the insurrection was subdued it became a favorite topic of conversation between the knights and lords of henry's bedchamber who always concluded by observing on the impossibility that henry the fourth should reign peaceably while richard the second was suffered to exist the wily king gave no intimation that he heard these colloquies after an abortive invasion by the count de st paul richard's brother-in-law the king's flatterers and tempters beset him more than ever yet says froissart emphatically the king of england made no reply but leaving them in conversation went to his falconers and placing a falcon on his wrist forgot all in feeding him froissart is far too courtly to acknowledge that so accomplished a knight as henry of lancaster ordered so foul a murder 
but other historians do not allow that Henry forgot all while feeding his falcon. There are so many circumstantial details in the narrative of old Fabian concerning the death of Richard II that there is little doubt of its being the true history of the murder of the unhappy king. Froissart has given the opening or prologue of the tragedy. But the following relation, gathered from Fabian and others, tells the manner in which it was played out. King Henry, sitting one day at table in a sighing manner, said, Have I no faithful friend who will deliver me of one whose life will be my death and whose death my life? This speech was much noted of the hearers, especially by one Sir Piers of Axton. This knight left the court, and, with eight persons more, went suddenly to Pontefract Castle. Whither being come, he called before him the squire, who was accustomed to wait on Richard at table, giving him a charge, that the king should eat as much as he would, for that now he should not long eat. King Richard being set at dinner was served negligently, and without the usual ceremony of tasting the dishes, before he commenced his meal. Richard, marveling at this sudden change, asked the reason, and was told that new orders had been given by King Henry to that effect. The devil take Henry of Lancaster and thee together, exclaimed the king in a passion, striking the man with a carving knife. On that word, in rushed Sir Piers Axton, with eight tall men, every man having a weapon in his hand. Richard, perceiving them, put the table back from him, and stepping up to the man next to him, wrung the weapon out of his hands, a brown bill, and therewith right valiantly defended himself, so that in conclusion four of them he slew outright. Sir Piers, amazed thereat, leaped upon the chair where King Richard usually sat. Some authorities say it was a curiously carved stone chair. While with the four surviving ruffians, the king was fiercely striving for conquest, and chasing them round the chamber, he passed near to the chair, whereon Sir Piers had gotten, who with a pole-axe smote him on the back of the head, and withal ridded him of his life in an instant. Thus, battling like a champion of proof, in the full exercise of mighty energies awakened at the call of despair, fell the son of the black prince at the early age of thirty-two. He died instantly, in the triumphant flush of victory against fearful odds. The gallantry of his death seems, in the minds of his combative nobles, to have aspersed the stain of illegitimacy, with which his rival foully tainted him. We hear no more, in Chronicle, of his being the son of a priest. Richard of Bordeaux, when dead, was placed on a litter covered with black cloth, and a canopy of the same. Four black horses were harnessed to it, and four varlets, in mourning, conducted the litter, followed by four knights, dressed also in mourning, Sir Piers being doubtless one of the knights, and the varlets, the worthy survivors of Richard's eight assailants. They thus paraded the streets, at a foot's pace, till they came to the chief, which is the greatest thoroughfare in the city, and there they halted for upwards of two hours. More than twenty thousand persons came to see King Richard, who lay in the litter, his head on a black cushion, and his face uncovered. Thus was Queen Isabella left a widow in her thirteenth year. The death of her royal lord was concealed from her a considerable time. 
but she learned the murderous manner of it soon enough, to reject with horror all offers of union with the heir of Lancaster. Young as she was, Isabella gave proofs of a resolute and decisive character. Traits of firm and faithful affection were shown by this youthful queen, which captivated the minds of the English, and caused her to be made the heroine of many a historical ballad, a species of literature that the people of the land much delighted in at that time. The young widow remained in a state of captivity at Havering Bower, while her royal father in France was laboring under a long and dolorous fit of insanity, brought on by anxiety for his daughter's fate. The French Council of Regency demanded the immediate restoration of the young queen, but Henry the Fourth would not hear of it, answering, that she should reside in England like other queen dowagers, in great honor, on her dower, and that if she had unluckily lost her husband, she should be provided with another forthwith, who would be young, handsome, and every way deserving of her love. Richard of Bordeaux was too old for her, but the person now offered was suitable in every respect, being no other than the Prince of Wales. It seems strange that Isabella, who had expressed such infant pride in being Queen of England, should give up voluntarily all prospect of enjoying that station, with a youthful hero, whose age was so suitable to her own, yet so it was. But she was inflexible in her rejection of the gallant Henry of Monmouth, and mourned her murdered husband in a manner exceedingly touching, as all who approached her, French or English, bore witness. Her refusal would have been of little avail, if her family and country had not seen the matter in the same light. In reply to Henry the Fourth's proposition, the French Regency declared, that during the grievous illness of their lord King Charles, they could not give away his eldest daughter without his consent. Therefore, months passed away. The maiden queen dowager still continued a mourning widow in the bowers of Havering. It is recorded that King Henry and his gallant heir did, in that interval, all in their power to win her constant heart from the memory of Richard, but in vain. She was just of the age to captivate the fancy of an ardent young prince like Henry of Monmouth. Nor can there exist a doubt, by the extreme pertinacity with which he wooed the widow of his cousin, that she was beloved by him. However this may be, the modern paradox of Richard's escape from the bloody towers of Pontefract is utterly annihilated by the continual efforts of Henry the Fourth to gain the hand of Isabella for his son. Would Henry, as a historical antiquary, in the Archaeologica, have been so desirous for the marriage of his heir with the widow of Richard, had he not been certain, beyond all doubt, that her husband was dead? He would not surely have promoted a marriage which would have illegitimated the heirs of Lancaster. This is one of the historical proofs of a disputed point which appeals directly to common sense. When Charles the Sixth recovered his senses, he sent the Count de Albrey to inquire into the situation of Isabella. King Henry and his council were at Eltham, when the French ambassador was splendidly entertained by him. He told Henry he had been sent by the king and queen of France, to see the young queen their daughter. The king replied, We no way wish to prevent you from seeing her, but you must promise on oath that neither yourself nor any of your company speak to her anything concerning Richard of Bordeaux. 
should you do otherwise you will greatly offend us and the whole country and remain in peril of your lives while here not long after this the earl of northumberland carried count de albray to havering at bower where isabella then resided she was attended by the duchess of ireland the duchess of gloucester her two daughters and other ladies and damsels as companions the earl introduced the french embassy to the young queen who conversed some time with them asking eagerly many questions after her royal parents they kept the promise they had made by never mentioning king richard and returned to london after a short interview at eltham on their way home they dined with king henry who presented them with some rich jewels when they took leave he said amicably tell those who sent you that the queen shall never suffer the smallest harm or any disturbance but shall keep up a state and dignity becoming her birth and rank and enjoy all her rights for young as she is she ought not to be acquainted with all the changes that happen in this world the council of henry the fourth meantime anxiously deliberated on the destination of the young queen it came at last to the decision that isabella being of tender age had no right to claim revenue as queen dowager of england but that as no accommodation could be effected by the marriage with the prince of wales she ought to be restored to her friends directly with all the jewels and paraphernalia that she brought with her but on this point a grand difficulty arose for henry the fourth had seized the little queen's jewels and divided them among his six children the prince of wales having the greatest share the king wrote to his council declaring that he had commanded his son and other children to give up the jewels of their dear cousin queen isabella and that they were to be sent to london but intention and performance are very different matters for that the dear cousin's jewels were never returned we have the evidence of the queen's uncle orlan and the french treaties between henry v and charles the sixth nor are they named with her property specified in her journey to lewingham yet in the schedule her silver drinking cup a few silver saucers and dishes with a little old tapestry are pompously enumerated it is worthy of remark to show the extreme parsimony of henry that an item demanding new clothes for the young queen and her maids of honor with cloth for their charrettes or chariots is sharply met with the answer that the king's wardrobe had given out all that he intended queen isabella set out for london may twenty seventh accompanied by two ladies of the royal family who had both received great injuries from richard the second the duchess of ireland was one and the countess of hereford mother to the duchess of gloucester the widow of the slaughtered thomas of woodstock the other to these ladies were consigned the care or rather the custody of isabella's person the sweetness of this angelic girl's disposition has certainly converted these natural enemies into loving friends as will presently be shown next in rank to these great ladies in the train of isabella was eleanor holland the young widow of roger earl of march slain in ireland whose son was heir of england de jour she had been appointed governess to the queen by richard the second and still adhered to her though merely classed now among her ladies of honour the other ladies were lady poynings lady mowbray and madame de vachet isabella had likewise seven maids of honour and two french chambermaids 
Simonette and Marianne. The French chamberlain was Monsieur de Vacher. She had a confessor and a secretary. She was escorted by the bishops of Durham and Hereford, and by the Earl of Somerset, Henry the Fourth's half-brother, with four knights bannerets, and six chevaliers. With this train and escort, the young queen set out from Havering. At Tottenham Castle, she was met by the late Lord Chamberlain, the Earl of Worcester, with a gallant company, who joined her train. The Lord Mayor and his vice-counts, as the aldermen were then called, with other good people of the city, met her at Sanford Hill, and, falling in with her procession, guarded her to London. At Hackney, Prince Thomas, second son to Henry the Fourth, met the young queen, and honorably accompanied her to London, assisted by the Constable of England, the Marshal, and other great officers. It is supposed Isabella tarried at the tower from the day of her London entry, but she did not sail for France till July 1st following, when three Bollingers and two armed barges were appointed to receive her and her suite at Dover. July was far advanced before the maiden widow of Richard II was restored to her parents, during which time Henry IV and his son tried every means in their power to shake her childish constancy to the memory of Richard. But her steady aversion, as Monstrelet calls her refusal, remained the same. The situation of this child was extraordinary, and her virtuous firmness, more probable in a royal heroine of twenty-eight, than in one who had seen little more than half as many summers. At last, the usurper resolved to restore the young widow to France, but refused to return her dowry, saying, that as a great favor, he would agree to deduct its amount from the total sum that France still owed England, for the ransom of King John. The jewels of the young queen he likewise retained, although it was expressly stipulated by the will of King Richard that, in the case of his death, the rich jewels his little wife had brought from France should be restored to her. Henry could not plead ignorance of his cousin's testament, since the poor king's will, while he was yet alive, had been broken open to furnish articles of accusation against him. The royal virgin was approaching her fifteenth year, when thus plundered, and, wearing the deep weeds of widowhood, she embarked at Dover for Calais, escorted by the same Thomas Percy, who had attended her as Chamberlain during her espousals. Notwithstanding the fact that his family had been the latter, wherewithal the mounting Bolingbroke ascended the throne of Richard, there is little doubt that Sir Thomas Percy's heart ever beat loyally towards his rightful master, for he was bathed in tears during the time he thus conducted the young widow of Richard to her native shores. My queen to France, from whence set forth in pomp, she came adored hither like sweet May, sent back like Hallamus or shortest day. Shakespeare. Lulinghen, a town between Boulogne and Calais, a sort of frontier ground of the English territory, was the spot appointed for the restoration of Isabella to her uncle of Burgundy. It was on the 26th of July, 1402, when Sir Thomas Percy, with streaming tears, took the young queen by the arm, and delivered her with good grace, into the hands of Walleran, Count St. Paul, surnamed the Righteous, and received certain letters of acquittance for her from the French. In these, the English commissioners declared that the young queen was just as she had been received, and Percy offered to fight all out trance, anyone who should assert the contrary. 
To do the French justice, they could not have welcomed back their young princess royal with more enthusiasm and loyalty, if she had been dowered with all the wealth of England, instead of returning destitute, and plundered of all but her beauty and honor. The virtues and sweet temper of the young queen had won the affections of her English ladies, for our manuscript pursues. No, before the parties separated, they all wept most piteously, and when they came to quit the chapel of Our Lady at Lewingham, Queen Isabel, whose young heart is full of tenderness and kindliness, brought all her English ladies, who were making sore lamentations, onto the French tents, where she made them dine with her. And after dinner, Queen Isabel took all the jewels she had remaining, and divided them among the lords and ladies of England, who had accompanied her, who all, nevertheless, wept mightily with sorrow at parting with their young queen. Yet still she sweetly bade them, be of good cheer, though weeping herself. Nevertheless, at the moment of parting, all renewed their lamentations. The damsel of Montpensier, sister of the Count de la Marche, the damsel of Luxembourg, sister to the Count de Saint-Paul, and many other noble ladies, were sent by the Queen of France to wait upon her daughter. Then the Count Saint-Paul led her to the Dukes of Burgundy and Bourbon, who, with a large company of armed men, were waiting, intending, if any demure had taken place regarding the restoration of their niece, to have charged the English party over hill and over valley, and taken her back by force to her fair sire, the King of France. She was received by her countrymen with every honor, and thence escorted to Boulogne and to Abbeville, where the Duke of Burgundy, to celebrate her return, made a grand banquet. She then proceeded through France to Paris, where her coming caused many a tear and many a smile. Most kindly was she received by the King and Queen of France, but though it was pretended, by King Henry, that she was restored with every honor, yet there was not any revenue or dower assigned her from England as Queen Dowager. Louis, Duke of Orleans, who was anxious to obtain the maiden queen as a bride for his promising heir, undertook to championize her wrongs. He sent a challenge, soon after her arrival in France, to Henry the Fourth, defying him as the plunderer of the young queen and the murderer of her husband, and offering to fight him in the lists on this quarrel. Henry coldly replied, he knew of no precedent which offered the example of a crown king entering the lists to fight a duel with a subject, however high the rank of that subject might be. How could you suffer, replies Isabella's uncle, in his letter of defiance, my much redoubted lady, Madame Queen of England, to return to her country desolate by the loss of her lord, despoiled of her dower, and of all the property she carried hence on her marriage? He who seeks to gain honor must support her cause. Are not noble knights bound to defend the rights of widows and virgins of virtuous life, such as my niece was known to lead? He concludes his epistle with bitter thanks for the superior care Henry took of the safety of the French knights, by refusing the combat, to what he did of the health and life of his own royal lord, King Richard. This taunt roused Henry into the indignant denial of the murder of his dear lord and cousin King Richard, whom God absolve. He continues, God knows how and by whom that death was done. But if you mean to say his death was caused by our order or consent, we answer that you lie, and will lie foully oft, 
as you say so. The pertinacity of Henry the Fourth to gain the sweet young queen as a bride for his gallant son was not overcome even by this furious correspondence with her uncle. In the year 1406, according to Monstrelet, he made a most extraordinary proposal, declaring that if the hand of Isabella, now in her eighteenth year, were bestowed on the Prince of Wales, he would abdicate the English crown in favor of the young prince. The royal council of France sat in debate on this offer for a long time, but the king's brother, Louis, Duke of Orleans, contended that he had the promise of the hand of Isabella for his son Charles of Angoulême. He represented the frauds of the king of England, and called to their memory the steady aversion of his niece to ally herself with the assassination of the husband she still loved. An unfavorable answer was therefore given to the English ambassadors, who departed malcontent. The betrothment of Isabella to her youthful cousin took place at Compiègne, where her mother, Queen Isabeau, met the Duke of Orleans and his son. Magnificent feats took place at the ceremony, consisting of banquets, dancing, jousts, and other jollities. But the bride wept bitterly while her hand was pledged to a bridegroom so much younger than herself. The court charitably declared that her tears flowed on account of her losing the title of Queen of England. But the heart of the fair young widow had been too severely schooled in adversity to mourn over a mere empty name. Her thoughts were on King Richard. The husband of Isabella became Duke of Orleans in 1407, when his father was atrociously murdered in the Rue Barbet by his kinsman, the Duke of Burgundy. Isabella took a decided part in demanding justice to be executed on the powerful assassin of her uncle and father-in-law. The young queen dowager of England came with her mother-in-law, Violante of Milan, Duchess of Orleans, both dressed in the deepest weeds of black. They arrived without the walls of Paris in a charrette or wagon covered with black cloth, drawn by six snow-white steeds, whose funeral trappings strongly contrasted with their color. Isabella and her mother-in-law sat weeping in the front wagon, a long file of mourning wagons filled with the domestics of the princesses followed. They were met at the gates by most of the princes of blood. This lugubrious train passed, at a foot's pace, through the streets of that capital stained by the slaughter of Orleans. The gloomy appearance of the procession, the downcast looks of the attendants, the flowing tears of the princesses, for a short time, excited the indignation of the Parisians against the popular murderer, John of Burgundy. Isabella alighted at the gates of the Hotel de Saint-Paul, where, throwing herself at the feet of her half-crazed father, she demanded, in concert with the Duchess Violante, justice on the assassin of her uncle. The unfortunate king of France was thrown into fresh agonies of delirium by the violent excitement produced by the sight of his suppliant daughter and sister-in-law. A year afterwards, the same mournful procession traversed Paris again. Isabella again joined Violante in crying for justice, not to the unconscious king, who was raving in delirium, but to the dauphin Louis, whose feeble hands held the reins of empire his father had dropped. Soon afterward, Isabella attended the deathbed of the Duchess Violante, who died positively of a broken heart for the loss of Orleans. 
The following year, Isabella was married to her cousin. The previous ceremony had been only betrothment. The elegant and precocious mind of this prince soon made the difference of the few years between his age and that of his bride forgotten. Isabella loved her husband entirely. He was the pride of his country, both in mind and person. He was that celebrated poet, Duke of Orléans, whose beautiful lyrics are still reckoned among the classics of France. Just as Isabella seemed to have attained the height of human felicity, adored by the most accomplished prince in Europe, beloved by his family, and with no present alloy in her cup of happiness, death claimed her as his prey in the bloom of her life. She expired at the castle of Blois in her twenty-second year, a few hours after the birth of her infant child, September 13, 1410. Her husband's grief amounted to frenzy, but after her infant was brought to him by her attendants, he shed tears, and became calmer while caressing it. The first verses of Orlan that attained any celebrity were poured forth by his grief for his sad bereavement. He says, Alas, death, who made thee so bold, to take from me my lovely princess? Who was my comfort, my life, my good, my pleasure, my riches? Alas, I am lonely, bereft of my mate. Adieu, my lady, my lily, our loves are forever severed. But a more finished lyric in the memory of Isabella thus commences in French, J'ai fait l'obsque de madame. Translation. To my lady's obsequies, my love a minister wrought, in the chantry service there was sung by doleful thought. The tapers were of burning size, that light and odor gave, and grief illumined by tears irradiated her grave. And round about, in quaintest guise, was carved, within this tomb there lies the fairest thing to mortal eyes. Above her lieth spread a tomb of gold and sapphires blue. The gold doth show her blessedness, the sapphires mark her true. For blessedness and truth in her were lively portrayed. When gracious God, with both his hands, her wondrous beauty made, she was, to speak without disguise, the fairest thing to mortal eyes. No more, no more, my heart doth faint, when I the life recall of her, who lives so free from taint, so virtuous deemed by all, who in herself was so complete, I think she was ta'en, by God to deck his paradise, and with his saints to reign, for well she doth become the skies, whom while on earth, each one did prize the fairest thing to mortal eyes. The exquisite beauty and naive earnestness of the last verse will inspire all readers with respect for the genius of the second husband of our Isabella. Isabella, thus passionately mourned in death by her husband, was happy in closing her eyes before the troublous era commenced, when sorrow and disgrace overwhelmed her family and her country. The infamy of her mother had not reached its climax during the life of Isabella. Charles of Orléans, by the peculiar malice of fortune, was doomed to a long imprisonment by the very man who had so often been refused by his wife, a circumstance which perhaps was not altogether forgotten by Henry V. The gallant husband of Isabella, after fighting desperately at Agincourt, was left for dead on the lost field, but, being dragged from beneath a heap of slain, was restored to unwelcome life by the care of a valiant English squire, Richard Waller. 
Orlan refused to eat or drink after recovering from his swoon, but was persuaded out of his resolution of starving himself to death by the philosophic and friendly remonstrances of Henry V. His wounds soon healed, and he was seen riding side by side with his conqueror and kinsmen, conversing in the most friendly terms, a few days after the victory of Agincourt. But after thus reconciling his unfortunate captive to life, Henry refused all ransom for him, because he was the next heir to the throne of France after Charles the Dauphin. Orlan was sent to England, and at first confined at Groom Bridge in Kent, the seat of Waller, but was afterwards consigned to a severe imprisonment in the Tower of London, where he composed some of his most beautiful poems. It was well that his fine mind possessed resources in itself, for his captivity lasted twenty-three years. Isabella was first interred at Blois, in the Abbey of Saint-Lomer, where her body was found entire, in 1624, curiously wrapped in bands of linen, plated over with quicksilver. It was soon after transferred to the Church of the Celestines, in Paris, the family burying place of the line of Orlan. End of section two. Thank you for listening to this episode of All Things Plantagenet. Remember, we also have a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com, where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the other episodes. Thank you for listening, and have a great day.